morning. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays and all that stuff as well. My name is Zach. I am uh, deeply uh, honored to be up here this morning with you guys. Um, thanks, Andrew and Brandon, for uh, inviting me to, to share this morning. We've already had one microphone malfunction. Hopefully this thing doesn't fall off my head because I've been trying to fight with it all morning. So um, if you are visiting with us, we would like to say that you are most welcome here. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we are delighted by your presence here among this hodgepodge group of broken people who are on the journey of faith together. Uh, so we are very glad that you are here. And again, we'd like to wish all y'all a very Merry Christmas. If you would like to uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter one. If you're using one of the Bibles on uh, the Ethos uh, communion tables, I think the page is six, I just wrote it down, 675 in those. I've been reminded lately, um, did I say my name was Zach? I don't know if I did or not. I'm Zach, in case I missed that part. There we go. Um, I've been reminded lately that Christianity is not just about what we believe, but it's about how we tell and participate in the story of which we are a part. So if you will permit me this morning, I'd love to attend to that goal a little bit more together which will mean a little bit of a longer reading than as usual. But I hope that through it, that God will refresh and invigorate our sense of the story that surrounds uh, and grounds us in this season of Christmas and Advent. Um, so with that, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning, starting in Matthew chapter one, uh, verse 18. Gotta use my glasses here, so don't judge. Hear the word of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said, what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed 
and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, O oh God, to receive your word this day. Thank you for the, gra- the gathering of your people. Thank you for this season for which we reflect the light coming into the darkness of our world. So this morning, O oh God, use my words. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I love Christmas. I always have. And even as a young child, I can remember the wonder of Christmas, the anticipation of it. Gifts around the tree, the pile of gifts expanding more and more the closer we drew near to December 25th, writing and leaving notes for Santa, staying up late on Christmas Eve, sneaking downstairs, trying to catch him in the act, and we were never successful, that sneaky old Saint Nick. And to this day, every single Christmas Eve, we still leave our knit stockings outside the fireplace for Santa to fill, and that will happen again this Christmas as well. But as the years go by, I think what draws me more during this season is the music of Christmas, the songs that we sing. Sure, like the classic jazzy kind of Christmas tunes with Bing Crosby and whatnot, but more than that, I think the classic Christian hymns that we hear around this time on the radio and in concerts and stuff. Like Hark the Herald and Angels We Have Heard on High and probably my favorite tune, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. These songs just bring something out in a very deep and powerful way during this season. However, I would like to argue that not all Christmas songs are created equal. See, as we return to Matthew's text of the birth narrative of Jesus, something seems amiss here. 
The story we find there doesn't entirely seem to match what we hear in some of these songs. They don't really seem like they would fit what we see on Hallmark's display of Christmas cards that line the aisle during this season. Some of our carols just seem out of place. Matthew's story points to many things that just simply seem inappropriate for Christmas time. There's rumors of sexual scandal, social embarrassment, political disturbance, secret conspiring, and further along in chapter two, we find a king's use of systematic violence and murder by which Jesus and his family become refugees seeking asylum in the most unexpected of places. And yet somehow, we find it appropriate to sing silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. I've loved that song for a long time, and perhaps that's a personal favorite of yours during this time, but I at least want us to consider, does it tell the real story. There's a Christian songwriter named Andrew Peterson who wrote a song that seems to make far more sense according to what we find in the text here in Matthew's gospel. And the words say this, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You can hear a woman cry in the alleyway that night on the streets of David's town and the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. Silent night, all is calm, all is bright. I wonder what could be further from the truth. I wonder have we so sterilized and commercialized and sanitized this story that we fail to see how our sentimental version of the Christmas story has become at best a fragmented half-truth and at worst a nostalgic lie. See, Matthew's gospel drops us headfirst, not into a polished up, tidied up, cleaned up nativity scene where the animals stand in their proper place and the magi come from the east holding, presenting their gifts just so, and they cock their heads at just the right angle for the picture. No, Matthew starts his gospel with a long list of what is to us mostly unfamiliar names. It's probably safe to say that most of us would just jump right over into, chapter, into verse 18, which is what I did this morning, so I'm a culprit in this affair as well where things get a little bit more interesting. But this morning, I would at least like to suggest that this genealogy of Jesus, these names of his family tree dating back to Abraham, is anything but a set of irrelevant names and unnecessary details. Rather, it gives key insight into who this God is. Stories litter this list of names. And of the ones that we know of in this, of the stories in the Old Testament, most of them are about really messed up people with re really messed up stories. Abraham, known as the father of faith, 
but hardly a beacon of moral character. Jacob, who was named the deceiver. Judah, one of the 12 brothers who plotted the demise of their younger brother. And oh yeah, who, was, who also impregnated his daughter-in-law who was disguised as a prostitute. Rahab, who made her living as a prostitute. David, the revered king of Israel, who murdered a man named Uzziah just to lay sexual claim to his wife, wife Bathsheba, and whose hands were so full of blood that God would not permit him to build the temple. Solomon, who essentially became an Israelite version of Pharaoh, and the list goes on, there are some good kings, but there are mostly bad kings, people who lived to see the apparent defeat of Yahweh as they were thrust into exile. This is how Matthew chooses to start his gospel narrative. This is Jesus' family tree, and it is hardly a spotless pedigree. There are plenty of people who any one of us would gladly disown, but God doesn't. And I think therein lies the point. God entered into history in the form of a baby to make a statement. And that statement was that the God of history does not rule as kings and power brokers of history do. God rules not through might and oppression and violence and manipulation. God brings his rule through the power of vulnerability and love for broken and vulnerable people. The Christmas story begins in the story of the people who come before Jesus. He is the God who comes not into an absence of dysfunction and violence. Rather, he makes his home in the midst of it all. For the, he makes his home in the midst of all the mess for his own love's sake. As Christian writer N.T. Wright puts it, there's no point in Jesus arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. There's no point in having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. And I would add not just where the pain is, but also where there is scandal. The text says Jesus' mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And as much as some skeptics would like to dismiss ancient people as just simply superstitious or religiously dumb, ancient people knew a heck of a lot more than are often given credit. They knew the power of metaphor and imagery they knew that dead people stayed dead and they knew where babies came from. No wonder Joseph had in mind to break off the engagement. Jesus was not his son. Joseph was not his father. See, Luke tends to focus more on Mary's circumstances in his gospel narrative, but Matthew seems to kind of focus on Joseph. So can we imagine what this time would have been like for Joseph? A sense of betrayal. 
You can almost hear him wondering, how could Mary do this to me? See, we aren't privileged to hear their conversations. Matthew doesn't let us in on what they talked about after finding out this circumstance. And we don't know the timeline of these events exactly, but here we are with Mary and Joseph on the threshold of marital breakdown. This is probably, perhaps, their worst moment so far. And it is when, it is in this moment when the Lord shows up and speaks. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, fear not. Isn't that powerful? It's not just shame or embarrassment, but it's fear that the angel confronts in Joseph. He said, Mary has conceived this child by the Holy Spirit. So name the boy Yeshua or Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is just the Greek form of the, of the word of the name Yeshua or Joshua, which simply means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh is the covenantal name that God revealed himself to uh, to Moses and throughout Israel. So whenever you see in your Bibles the word Lord with all caps, this is the name that's used, Yahweh. So Joseph obeys and names the boy Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus' own name itself links the promises of God of Israel with what he is now doing in the form of this vulnerable baby. So after Jesus is born, some pretty unknown figures, some pretty unknown people show up in Jerusalem. They're called the Magi, and they come from the east, which is probably somewhere near modern-day Iran. And the song that we sing says that there were three kings, but we don't actually know how many of them there actually were, and we don't indeed know if they were, in fact, kings. More likely, they were probably some kind of high-ranking religious court officials of some sort. But either way, here in the Magi are non-Jewish outsiders, Gentiles, who come knocking on Herod's door, setting off what some have called political dynamite. See, King Herod, who is in power in Judea at this time, was not of royal blood. He was simply appointed by the Romans, noting the tenacity and the outright ruthlessness of his own military career. And the longer he was in power, the more paranoid he became. This is the guy, King Herod is the guy, who would come to plot and assassinate members of his own family just to secure his own power base. So paranoid may be an understatement. And we can imagine how the Magi's question would sound to him. Where's the baby born king of the Jews so that we might go and worship him? So through Herod's paranoia, he calls together his religious and social officials and to determine the place where this baby would be. And certainly Herod is interested in finding the baby, yes. But we hear the duplicity in his words. And we don't believe what he says. It doesn't seem that Herod is really interested in worship after all. His ulterior, his ulterior motives 
reek of something far more sinister. So the Magi go to Bethlehem and find this baby, the whole goal of their journey. When they finally meet the child laying in Mary's arms, they are overjoyed. We aren't given the full answer, but we wonder why were these Gentiles so overwhelmed to see this baby? What, what did they know here? Though they weren't Jewish, they likely had some kind of cursory knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures since there were likely many Jewish outposts and communities spread all across the lands east of Jerusalem as kind of lingering um, communities from the exile. But did they really understand their act of worship? Probably not fully, no. But their worship is powerful because this baby is worthy of it. See, these outsiders who traveled hundreds of miles and for who knows how long came to worship the baby born under the ruler who should have been waiting expectantly for him all along. And I wonder, does that irony continue to live in our day as well? Do we anticipate the coming of God to his people to save and redeem and make new his world and his creation? Or are we too given to fear and selfishness and pride to even be concerned about it? So the Magi, having worshiped and offered their gifts, they're preparing to head back when uh, the angel of God speaks again, warning them of danger. So they take another out home. Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to flee. And the great ironic twist is that they find refuge in the very place that their own people were enslaved in generations before in Egypt. So Egypt granted them the safety that they sought while their own homeland of Judea, of Israel, was the place of danger. How absurd these circumstances that a newborn infant could pose such a threat to great King Herod. Well, apparently Herod saw enough of a threat to lead him later on in chapter two to order the murder of every baby under the age of two in attempts to wipe out any future political resistance. So this ruthless king sheds innocent blood in this Christmas story. No, it was not a silent night. And here we pause as we tend to the text of Christmas, it seems now just like such a grim affair. And certainly it was. Jesus did not come into comfort and peace. As one writer puts it, he came in violence and travail. See, Jesus managed to escape the ones trying to kill him as a baby. He and his parents find asylum as refugees but the manger ultimately lays in the shadow of the cross. See, there would eventually come a time where Jesus would no longer flee. He would no longer seek refuge. And when he would willingly walk into a conspiracy of violence and murder 
to begin the movement to cast out all violence, evil, and darkness. The Christmas child is born in the shadow of the cross because he comes as the promise of God. This God does not try to escape scandal and travail and brokenness and hate and death, but he comes into the midst of it all to defeat it and to redeem a world that is consumed by it. That, friends, is the hope of Advent. It is the love of the God who isn't trying to get us into heaven, but who is coming to us and bringing heaven with him. So why did God ultimately care about saving us? Why did God ultimately come to be with us? Was it because he was so divinely self-centered and just needy? He needed people to worship him? Was it because he wanted to secure power through Jesus just like the other nations around him at the time and how we see that continuing to be displayed in the nations of, of our world today? No, it was because of love. It was because God himself is love. It was not a love that was a luxury of the absence of pain and violence and conflict. It wasn't this sentimental feeling when all seems to be right with the world. God's presence among us was his own act of daring, dangerous love. God himself, Yahweh himself, draws near to us in this baby, Jesus. His entrance into our world was a defiant, selfless love. Indeed, we say a lot during this time, light began shining in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. I've heard it said before that the church shouldn't be the happiest place in town, but it should be the most honest place in town. I kind of like that. I think that's right. Um, and some of us honestly approach this time with the excitement of cherished moments of Christmas. Excited to gather around family and friends once more and celebrate and do our traditions and make more memories and whatnot. And it's honestly a time of great joy for, for many of us. But honestly, some of us probably go into this season with a fear and dread for many reasons. Maybe Thanksgiving every year reminds us of why we're glad we moved away from home, moved away from our dysfunctional families, and we drag our feet into the following weeks because we know we got to do it all over again in a month at Christmas time. Or maybe for you it's because of loved ones you've lost, and this is your first Christmas without them. Maybe it's the painful uncertainty of not knowing how much longer you have with those that you love. The shock and pain of death is enough to suffer already, but then having to turn around and walk through a time and season where culture seems to just try to slap a manufactured smile on everyone's face just makes the sting even worse. And if that is the case, dear friends, 
If that describes your situation, we mourn with you. And we ask you to forgive us when we as Christians are complicit in that dishonesty as well. Will you forgive us for that? But just like we are reminded every week as we gather around the table, Jesus has made room for every person. All that we bring, all that we mourn, all we anticipate, all we dread, all we fear, all we celebrate, all that we are, Christ has come and makes room for all. That, to me, is the reason that Advent is such a powerful time, because through God's coming in the form of the vulnerable baby of Bethlehem, he has shown us that love breaks in through the trial, through the pain, through the joy alike. So last week we lit the hope candle. We love the idea of hope. There's something that just humanity clings to, the sense of hope. But I wonder, without love, what is the point of hope? What good is hope unless it is grounded and bound by love? Would hoping for a better world, a less violent world, a more just and fair world really be worth hoping for if love was not there? The, Christ, the Christian story says rightly, I think, that hope can actually be hope because love is what drives it from the start. God loves, so therefore we can and God's greatest gift is his own presence. Emmanuel, God with us, says more about the love of God than we may ever fully know. So I wonder, what does that mean for us? Again, I think the table is a very appropriate place to start. Because every week we proclaim not only the death of Christ and not only his resurrection, but his constant presence with us as his people and everything that we bring and all that we are. As we gather here again, we are reminded that in order for love to be authentic, it has to be earthed, so to speak. God's love came in flesh and blood. So I wonder how is our love coming in flesh and blood and action as well? How is our love touching down, as it were? Perhaps there is a relationship in your life that needs mending and healing. Let God bring light into that space by courageously making yourself vulnerable to ask for forgiveness or to offer it, maybe. Maybe it's a family member who you just butt heads with around this time of the year. I wonder, maybe God is calling you, dare I say, to try to listen well to them again and perhaps hear the pain and insecurities that linger behind this frustrating facade. Or maybe God needs to confront hardness in your own heart. Maybe God has been calling you into something for a long time now, and you've just been resisting and putting it off, is God now asking you to finally 
step out and go where he's leading. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you need to do. But whatever it is, let us together step into that. After we wrap up here, there'll be people behind us at the Respond banner. There's people around who would love to talk to you. I will make myself available. Whatever you need to do, we just say go for it, however you need to respond. So brothers and sisters, we wish you a very merry Christmas and a very happy Advent season to you all. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, there's a sign that I saw the other day that says there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. I think that's a very appropriate thing to say for this season and this story. God, we know the tension of this wonderful, beautiful, confusing, and sometimes downright woeful world where there is simultaneously both unspeakable pain and violence that leads to despair and sorrow and cynicism that leads to apathy and boredom. So, O God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of the covenant promises, God of Christ's kingdom, God of our story, we ask that you will confront our pain and violence confront our cynicism, our apathy, our boredom, and lead us into a reimagined life where your justice reigns and where the light of Bethlehem may breach the darkness of despair and speak life into a world that is ravaged by fear and anger. Forgive us when we as your church have convinced the world around us that to be a Christian simply means to be disinterested and bored. Lord Jesus Christ, be the light of the world as you say you are this day, so that as we gather around the table again, we may be transformed by it to become more like it. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray, amen.